Good morning, everyone. Can we begin by praying this prayer together? Um, for Julian of Norwich, Bridget of Sweden, and Teresa of Avili, and for all who renew our vision of the mystery of God, thanks be to God. I'm very excited to be here today. I'm talking about Julian of Norwich. I'm Sadie McLeod. I'm from Wheaton, and I attend Wheaton College, where I'm a senior. Um, I've been coming to All Souls for about two and a half years. I really love this church, and I love um, catechesis as an event, so I feel very honored to be able to speak here this morning. So I am very both thrilled and daunted to speak with you today about Julian. Um, the shortness of Julian's writings belies their breadth and complexity. She has something interesting to say about many of the central concerns of theology, um, creation, man, nature, life, the incarnation, the death and glorification of Christ, grace, sin, the church, Mary, prayer, and the world to come. Um, today what I want to discuss is Julian's brilliant ability to integrate seemingly disparate and conflicting concepts. I think she does this both in her thought as well as in her manner of living as an anchoress. So I'll begin by giving some brief background on Julian's life. Then I will first consider how Julian lived as an anchoress before turning to what I take to be the central concern of her writings, which is the opposition between human sin and divine love. Um, so Julian was born on November 18, 1342, and died around 1416. Um, the time that she lived in was one of great tumult. Um, the first plague of the Black Death occurred um, just about right after she was born. And in fact, the church to which she was attached as an anchoress, um, the road which passed by it and passed by her um, anchor hold, the room that she would have been in, um, was used to cart away dead bodies from the plague. Um, so she would have seen this probably every day. Um, also, the Hundred Years' War between England and France began in 1337. Um, the Papal Schism is also occurring at the same time, as well as a lot of, like John Wycliffe was declared a heretic in 1415. Um, a lot of things are happening, and she's um, in a position, living in England, to witness a lot of them and to be like very aware of this political turmoil and also just like personal turmoil of the people living during that time. Okay, so she um, was an anchoress, which... This is an image I found of an anchoress's cell, an anchor hold. Um, her own anchor hold is destroyed. We, it's no longer attached to the church to which she was attached. But um, an anchoress was a man or woman, it could be an anchorite, who took a vow to remain in their anchor hold until death. Um, this was an enclosed cell. There were no doors out that would be attached to a church. Traditionally, there were three windows, one small window which looked into the church from which the anchoress could receive um, the Eucharist, um, another window through which a servant could um, bring her food and dispose of waste, and another window often through which the anchoress could give words of wisdom and encouragement to people who came to her. Um, we know that Julian participated in this last activity um, because Margaret Kemp, who we is thought to have written maybe the first autobiography in English, um, writes of visiting her. And she says that she, Margaret, was charged by her lord to go to an anchoress in the same city who was called Dame Julian. And so she did, and she showed her the grace that God had put in her soul, and many full speeches and conversations that our lord spoke to her soul, and many wonderful revelations which she revealed to the anchoress in order to establish if there was any deception in them, for the anchoress was an expert in such things and could give good counsel on the matter. Um, so Julian was attached, anchoresses were attached to um, a physical church, um, and this is the church of St. Julian of Norwich, um, or in Norwich, to which she was attached. Um, 
The church does not derive its name from Julian. Julian is, derives her name from the church. And in fact, Julian isn't actually canonized. Um, this church is named after two other possible St. Julians, both of whom have very interesting stories. But um, yeah, so she derives her name from the church. We don't know much else about her than that. Um, so Julian, as I said, was an ingress. Um, here's a quote from, I don't know how to pronounce this, it's Old English, but Ingrin Wiss, which is a 13th century guide for ingresses. The ingress is called an anchor, and anchored under the church, like an anchor under the side of a ship to hold the ship, so that waves and storms do not capsize it. Just so all holy church, which is described as a ship, should anchor on the anchoress for her to hold it so that the devil's blasts, which are temptations, do not blow it over. So here we see this picture of the anchoress or the anchorite as a person who like is encounters the evils of the world, like and in a certain sense takes them on for the church. She is a person who can um, be seen as an anchor for the church, both the individual church to which she's attached as well as to the greater church. Um, what's really interesting about the position of an anchoress is that there are many ways in which an anchoress is required to sort of straddle two different spheres in the world. She's a very in-between um, kind of a person. So first of all, um, when an anchoress enters the anchor hold, she lives consecrated by the ritual of the burial service. So an anchoress declares that her anchor hold is a tomb, and in it she is buried with Christ. This is only partly metaphorical because an anchoress will die in her anchor hold, and that will become her tomb. So until that time, she lives in a state which is in between life and death because while she is living, she's living in her tomb, so preparing the way for her future death. Inkernwes, that guide, that 13th century guide, says, admiring their own white hands is bad for many anchoresses who keep them too beautiful, such as those who have too little to do. They should scrape up the earth every day from the grave in which they will rot. So they're very connected to their future grave. And interestingly, this is later echoed in Julian's Revelations, which we'll get to soon. Um, a further way in which she's situated in between two different spaces is in her canonical position. So her position as an anchoress places her as in between a rule-governed community, like a monastery or a convent, and the freedom of the lay world. The vows taken by an anchoress do not make her a cleric, nor do they allow her to remain an ordinary laywoman. So she exists in a kind of theological exile. She's alone, but she's not alone within a monastic community. And in fact, although there are guides to the way an anchoress ought to live, these guides aren't authoritative. So there isn't like a rule that she must vow to uphold. Um, and also, the audience of for whom she wrote is sort of ambiguous because of her place as an anchoress. Um, she does not live in either monastic or an academic community, um, so she doesn't have the sort of give and take of dialogue that those sorts of communities would allow for. Um, in fact, she's isolated. She's by herself. Um, what she does with this is she writes to what she calls her even Christian. So she writes to all Christians, which in a certain sense is a very broad, ambiguous term, especially in the 14th century, where um, there were you know, separations between academic communities and church clerical communities and um, lay communities. Um, um, also, the style of her writings are very unique. They're situated um, between the sort of dialectic academic work that is going on prior to her time and also during her time. Um, uh, medieval scholasticism is still sort of um, in full swing at this time, so 
her writings aren't, don't fit into that category. However, she does some very technical theological work, which sets her apart from certain standard visionary texts. Okay, so I gave you, or there's some handouts out there, and what I did on the handouts was write a bunch of quotations from the revelations, which I think are either really helpful or really beautiful. Um, so as we go through, I'll like mention if I'm quoting one, and hopefully some people volunteer to read. Um, but um, I, wrote, I have them listed in order of their appearance in the, nor um, in the revelations, even though I'm going to start out by reading one that's at the very end of the handout. Um, but so first, um, Julian receives her revelation, she says, on May 13, 1373, when she was 30 and a half years old. She records this revelation in the short text. The short text is very short. It's like 50 pages. It's like this much of this book. Then scholars think she spent up to 20 to 30 years later, um, or it was up to 20 or 30 years later when she wrote the long text. And the long text just expands upon the themes of the short text, developing and explicating the kinds of um, things that she sees as important in her revelation. Um, so um, the idea is that in between the time that she wrote the long text, Julian has spent contemplating her re revelations and considering their meaning. Um, along those lines are two like quick, well, quick points that I'd like to make about her work. The first is that I think she sees theology, and particularly her th theology, as necessarily incomplete. Um, so I'm going to quote from the very last chapter of the book, which I have on your handouts. Um, Julian says, <clears throat> this is the very last chapter of the long text. This book is begun by God's gift and his grace, but it is not yet performed as I see it. For charity, let us all join with God's working in prayer, thanking, trusting, rejoicing. For so will our good Lord be entreated by the understanding which I took in all his own intention and in the sweet words where he says most happily, I am the foundation of your beseeching. For truly I saw and understood in our Lord's meaning that he revealed it because he wants to have it better known than it is. I think that Julian sees her theological project as necessarily incomplete and that her theology is best done, or for her theology is best done through like the monastic trajectory from Lectio Divina to contemplation. And because the process of contemplation is never ending, there's no real reason to think that the project of theology can be concluded. And this can be seen as in the very last sentence here. She says, um, she talks about the Lord having revealed her these things in order that they might be better understood over time. So I think she thinks of her project as one of contemplation and something that must always continue. Um, and in that way, it's really neat that we still have this text to read because we can sort of enter into that process. Also, Julian is often spoken of as a mystic. Um, I think a common, maybe more popular way of thinking about mysticism is what William James talks about in his Varieties of Religious Experience, which is that the mystic is a person who experiences some kind of union with God through an ineffable experience, which defies expression. I think this does not at all suit Julian. I think that she receives knowledge of God that he has given to her, but the way she talks about it in her text is that she's been given this knowledge to share with her even Kristen. And although she thinks that she can't share it completely, um, that's only because she can't understand it completely herself. So the way she's mystic is more in a more medieval sense where um, she sees her revelation as a text that has many layers of meaning which can be developed and brought out. And her task as a mystic is to find those various meanings and to share them. Okay, so now let's actually look at her revelations. Oh, 
That was the quote from the end. So Julian fra or frames her revelations by saying that she prayed for three gifts. She prays through three gifts. Um, first, she desires a recollection of the passion. She says, I thought that I wished that I had been at that time with Magdalene and the others who are Christ's lovers, so that I might have seen with my own eyes the passion which our Lord suffered for me, so that I might have suffered with him as others did who loved him. Therefore I desired a bodily sight in which I might have more knowledge of our Savior's bodily pains and of the compassion of Our Lady and of all his true lovers who were living at that time and saw his pains, for I would have been one of them and have suffered with them. Second, she desired to have by God's gift a bodily sickness. She says she wished that sickness to be so severe that it might seem mortal, so that I might in it receive all the rights which Holy Church has to give me, whilst I myself should think that I was dying, and everyone who saw me would think the same. For I wanted no comfort from any human earthly life in that sickness. Her third prayer is that she wanted to have as God's gift three wounds. The wound of true contrition, the wound of loving compassion, and the wound of longing with her will for God. So she says that she asks for the first two gifts conditionally because she sees that they're not according to the practice of ordinary prayer. And so she asks for them only on the condition that it be God's will that they be given to her. Then she says she forgot them entirely. Um, the third gift she says she asks for continually and without any condition. She asks for it urgently and it is always before her mind. So she says um, that when she was 30 and a half, she received a bodily sickness in which she lay for three days and three nights. So very like Christological imagery. Um, she received all the rites of the Holy Church. And I, I maybe have this in the handout. It's from the long text, chapter three. She says, good Lord, can my living no longer be to your glory? And I understood by my reason and the sensation of my pains that I should die. And with all the will of my heart, I assented to be holy as was God's will. So this is um, the state in which she's in when she receives these 16 revelations. Um, now, Dennis Turner, whose book I read, I think has a really, it's a good book, you should read it, um, <laughs> has a really interesting way of talking about the structure of her revelations. It's a pretty hard, I found it a very hard structure to like sort of parse out. Um, the way he says he likes to think about it is, is as a series of variations on a theme, the theme being the first revelation, um, and that Julian is like ever expanding and um, adding in, growing all um, various elements that she's like using to develop this first theme, um, which makes it sort of complicated to like find one thread to follow because they're all seemingly interconnected. But um, I really like that sort of um, approach that he advocates for. So this is the first, and I think it's, I think it's sort of founded in the, the way Julian herself talks about her revelations. This is her description of the first revelation. The first revelation is actually like nine chapters long, so we won't read that whole thing, but this is just like sort of the starting point and the seed from which all these things springs, spring. So she says, this is a revelation of love which Jesus Christ, our endless bliss, made in 16 showings, of which the first is about his precious crowning of thorns, and in this was contained and specified the blessed trinity with the incarnation and the union between God and man's soul with many fair revelations and teachings of endless wisdom and love in which all the revelations which follow are founded and connected. So here we see that there's an emphasis on the trinity and an emphasis on the incarnation and the way um, 
it works to unify God and man's soul. Um, Julian sees the Trinity as very important. And it is interwoven throughout all of her other ideas. And I don't want to, I, I don't have time to spend sort of developing it, which is sad because she's one of the, she really emphasizes, puts an emphasis on understanding God, one member of the Godhead as mother. But here are all the ways, or some of the ways in which she like names the different members of the Trinity. Um, I really am interested in the last one. I may, I can, and I will. Um, but Julian, I think, doesn't think we can actually name God or say anything really about him. I think she is a very apophatic theologian. Um, however, her strategy for dealing with that isn't to not name God at all or just to kind of talk about him as something like ineffable. She sort of just like explodes the categories by like naming him in as many ways as she possibly can, which I think is a really interesting strategy. So she has so many, many different ways of talking about the Trinity. So. I think that's really interesting. So this will come back because the cross is very central to Julian's work and the cross must be seen as representative of the entirety of the Trinity, she thinks. Okay, so um, what I want to talk about mostly is what I take to be sort of the central theme of, Julian, um, of Julian's thought and that's the question of how human sin can exist in a world sustained by divine love. Um, so Julian talks repeatedly about how divine love and human sin are the only two realities. And because for her they're such real things, she is very, very distraught that they don't work together. So I have on the handout the entirety of chapter 27, where I think she lays out what she sees as the problem really well. Um, would anyone volunteer to read part of it? It's pretty long, so I don't know if I want to read the whole thing. Okay. Exactly. I don't know, maybe the first three paragraphs and someone else could read the last three? I don't know. Okay. Yes. Thank you. 
his blessed will. And because of the tender love which our good Lord has for all who will be saved, he comforts readily and sweetly, meaning this, it is true that sin is the cause of all this pain, but all will be well, and every kind of thing will be well. Someone pick up with the last three. These words were appealed most tenderly, showing no kind of blame to me or to anyone who will be saved. So it would be most unkind to me to blame God or marvel at him on account of my sins, since he doesn't blame me for sins. And in these same words, I saw hidden in God an exalted and wonderful mystery, which he will make plain, and we shall know it happened. In this knowledge, we shall truly see the cause why he allowed sin to come, and in this sight, we shall rejoice forever. Thank you, guys. Um, so I think here, Julian sets out in part the problem that she attempts, or that she considers, contemplates, and attempts to resolve for herself in this text. I mean, the entirety of the text. So this is sort of how I see the problem, and of course, it's drawing on lots of other parts of the divine revelations, but. There are, there are a series of things that we can know. So we can know the first, the, the four things here. We can know that God is almighty love. We can know that God creates and sustains all things, including our free and sinful actions. We can know that there are truly sinful actions. And we can know that God cannot sin. However, what Julian thinks, and what seems to be right, is that what we cannot do is occupy the position which would allow us to have knowledge as to how these propositions are consistent with one another. These propositions seem inconsistent, and Julian says that that is the only way that we can see them. We can sort of believe that there is this mystery which shows them as consistent, but we are not in the position to have that knowledge. Um, so part of what is part of the problem comes with the consideration or the way Julian thinks about sin. So in this passage, she talks about sin in two different ways. And for her, sin both is a very real thing. So she says, well, she speaks about the sin. Um, it's, this is in the middle of the second paragraph. In this naked word sin, our Lord brought generally to my mind all which is not good and the shameful contempt and the direst tribulation which he endured for us in this life. And she goes on to describe the passion. Um, she also, her earlier revelations, um, there are a lot of visual images of the passion which are very, very gruesome and bloody, um, very revolting. And I think she sees that this, like, is a very, like, sin is what has caused these things. And in that sense, it's also very real. Also, for her, she sees the effects of sin as very real in her own body because she's thinking she's dying. And she feels that in her body as she is, like, having these things revealed to her. Um, However, she also talks about, and this is in the middle of the third paragraph, sin as having no kind of substance. But I did not see sin, for I believe that it has no kind of substance, no share in being, nor can it be recognized except by the pain caused by it. So what then is sin? Because sin feels to be very real, and its effects are very real, but at the same time, if it has no substance, how, it is, that, how is it that we are so harmed and um, frustrated in our good intentions by it? So I think Julian's thought can, I think we can say that she speaks of two different narratives through which, we, through which sin is understood. The first narrative is that which sin tells about itself. 
this narrative is true to our experience of sin because we are sinful people, and so it's the narrative that we construct about sin. It, it accurately says that sin is a real power and a real force that harms us and can cause us great sorrow. However, it's not true from the perspective of divine love. Sin, that's because sin makes us misperceive the nature of sin. So I think Julian thinks that human experiences human experiences of sin are sort of spontaneously Manichaean, so that sin, we sort of think of sin as this malevolent force which confronts us and which we might desire to overcome. Um, in our everyday experience, we feel the drama enacted between this very real sin and the divine love, which doesn't seem to work at all with it. In this narrative, the narrative sin tells about itself, divine love and sin seem totally in conflict. However, there's also, and this is what she feels has been revealed to her, there's also the narrative which divine love tells about sin. And in this narrative, sin is behovely, and it is behovely within an all-encompassing primal love. This is something we cannot understand, but it's true, she thinks, as has been revealed to her, she thinks that sin is defeated from all eternity, and partly the reason for that is because sin has existed, or the potential for it has, well, she actually talks about it like the actuality for sin, has, actuality of sin, has existed from all eternity within the all-encompassing divine love. Um, this doesn't mean, she thinks, though, that we need to deny our experience of evil as a very real thing. So, one way in which these two stories sort of, or we can think of these two stories as sort of coinciding is with, through the idea of sin as um, a mis, sin, the narrative that sin tells as um, causing a misperception about the nature of sin. So the divine ordering of the cosmos, ordered by divine love, is such that it includes its own exclusion, which is hell. So divine love allows for its own exclusion in the presence of hell. Um, so in a sense, this hell isn't real, it has no substance, but yet it does exist, and it's real to those people who experience it. Um, in relation to the order that sin constructs, so this narrative that sin constructs is very ordered, the intervention of love, divine love, can mean only the violent subversion of sin and the order that sin has constructed. Um, here. I like the way, this is the way Dennis Turner talks about it, and I really like this. He says, the possibility of hell is an expression of the divine love, but everything in hell is premised on the refusal of the love that made it possible. For hell is hell because it is the condition of not being able to see the fact that love made it. Um, so I think, I'm going to bring in Dante, because I think Dante's Inferno in the Commedia, or Commedia, um, like does a very, very good job of like drawing this out into an image of hell. So here, this is Virgil speaking to Dante about the one, Christ, who has come into Dis to um, gather up lustles. So this is after Christ has died. And Virgil says, there came one who gathered up from Dis the stolen treasure of its highest place. Moments before a tremor in every part disturbed these fetid depths. The universe must then, I think, have felt that love through which it often turns, so some suppose, to chaos. At that same point, these age-old crags were rent and left both here and elsewhere as they are. So here we can see that Dante sort of introduces the inferno as a place that has order 
and it has a structure, it has something that can be seemingly turned into chaos. Um, this structure is what sin has made apart from love, and it's the space that love has allowed it um, because it can't see, hell can't see that it's sinful and that love isn't participating. Um, and so when Christ, who is love, has entered into dis, he causes like very large earthquakes which destroy the structure of this hell. Um, also, these are the lines that are, this is the inscription on the gates of hell. So Dante reads these before he enters into the inferno. Um, through you go to the grief-wracked city, through me to everlasting pain you go. Through me you go and pass among lost souls. Justice inspired my exalted creator. I am a creature of the holiest power of wisdom in the highest and of primal love. So here we see that love, or Dante sort of talking about love as something that has created this, created in the inferno, but the way in which it seems to be created going on the previous passage is not as a place strictly of judgment, it's a place necess uh, necess necessarily of judgment, but it's created because love is such that it allows for sin to have this order apart from itself. Um, so it seems that Julian can say that sin is both real and has no matter of substance because the sense in which sin is real is in the sense that an unreality can become the real substance of a person's or of a society's existence. So sin is unreal, but in its unreality, it forms this narrative about itself, which it then um, causes people to live in. So this lived in reality is real, and it has substance, although sin itself, which is the cause of this, doesn't have substance. So. Um, that's sort of like the sin part of the equation. I'm going to read part of chapter 22, which I don't, I don't know if I put on the handout, um, where the good Lord is talking to Julian about um, his crucifixion. Then our good Lord put a question to me. Are you well satisfied that I suffered for you? I said, yes, good Lord, all my thanks to you. Yes, good Lord, blessed may you be. Then Jesus, our good Lord, said, if you are satisfied, I am satisfied. It is a joy, a bliss, an endless delight to me that ever I suffered my passion for you, and if I could suffer more, I should suffer more. Then, skipping down to the end of the chapter, she says, The love which made him suffer it surpasses all his sufferings, as much as heaven is above earth. For the suffering was a noble, precious, and honorable deed, performed once in time by the operation of love, and love was without beginning. It is and shall be without end. And for this love, he said very sweetly this, if I could suffer more, I should suffer more. He did not say if it were necessary to suffer more, but if I could suffer more, for although it might not have been necessary, if he could suffer more, he would. This deed and this work for our salvation were as well devised as God could devise it. It was done as honorably as Christ could do it, and here I saw complete joy in Christ, for his joy would not have been complete if the deed could have been done any better than it is. So here you see the way Julian talks about God's love for us. It's a very powerful and deep love, which <laughs> leads God to say, or Christ to say, if he could suffer more, he should suffer more. 
I like the fact that she makes this distinction between um, him saying if he could suffer more, he would, and if it were necessary to suffer more, he could. Um, I think this leads into what I, what Julian talks about as the resolution between these two um, states that are in opposition to each other. So the resolution between our human sin, um, which we don't understand and which somehow seems totally in opposition to <coughs> divine love, and um, God's just deep, deep love for us. So, um, sorry, let's see. Oh, okay. I have an icon of crucifixion just because the crucifixion is very central and I think, it's, I think this is a very beautiful image. So we can have it before our eyes as we read this. Okay, so Julian says, Ah, good Lord, how could all things be well because of the great harm which has come through sin to your creatures? And here I wished, so far as I dared, for some plainer explanation through which I might be at ease about this matter. And to this our blessed Lord answered very meekly and with a most loving manner. And he showed that Adam's sin was the greatest harm ever done or ever to be done until the end of the world. Furthermore, he taught that I should contemplate the glorious atonement for this atoning is more pleasing to the blessed divinity and more honorable for man's salvation without comparison than ever Adam's sin was harmful. So, on the cross, love and sin meet. Um, and Julian, although she sees the cross as a sort of solution to this problem, it's still a riddle to her. It's still a mystery to her. And in part, that is because it is Christ who is crucified. And she speaks of Christ as necessarily encompassing the entirety of the Trinity. So when we see Christ, you're supposed to see or understand the Trinity. And when we see or understand the Trinity, we're supposed to see and understand Christ. Um, that's a very interesting claim, but we can leave that for another time. <laughs> um, so the thing she says is that the only thing that meditates between um, love and sin is the cross. The cross is what comes and brings these two things together. And interestingly for Julian, there's no resurrection narrative. So she doesn't think that hope can be placed in superior force. Her understanding of the resurrection isn't as some like event tacked on like, oh, look it, love has been destroyed by sin. Um, okay, well, here's the resurrection. Love is all powerful and comes back and beats sin. There's no narrative of superior force. Um, a concluding resurrection narrative is not possible because she thinks the conflict between sin and love is the final conflict. So sin wages war against love because by its nature, sin knows only violence and war. Love, on the other hand, wages no war. It is absolute vulnerability. So because of this, Julian sees that there's no need for a subsequent reversal of the cross's violent defeat because in sin's violent victory over love, sin is defeated. It defeats itself. So you have sin, which is absolute like war, and its last resort is to kill. So sin's deep, like most important strategy is killing. And once it does that, it can't do anything more. So if love is not attacking and if love is only absolute vulnerability, sin can kill as much as it wants. But as Christ has told Julian, if I could suffer more, I would. He has no, come, no response to come back with because that's what love is. And so sin exhausts itself in killing Christ. It defeats itself. So while the cross in a certain sense is, in a certain sense is sin's defeat of love, love ends up getting the upper hand just because it's defeated. So for Julian, 
Third is no need to tack on an extra sort of resurrection narrative as an illustration of hope sort of coming back and conquering um, or of superior force conquering sin. Rather, the resurrection is just the meaning of the cross. Um, the resurrection just like sort of um, is the meaning of the vulnerability of love as defeating the violence of sin. So Julian sort of says that this is all we can know. We can know that sins be holy. We can understand that there's this conflict between the way that we understand sin as something that's real and what has been revealed to her, that sin is just, is of no substance. Um, and the fact that God is love. All of these things seem sort of inconsistent, but what she says is that they come together on the cross and that is the only place and the only way in which we can hope to come to terms with their inconsistency, although we can't understand them fully. And as I said earlier, in part this is because she sees on the cross, the main like actor on the cross is Christ, and in Christ is represented the entirety of the Trinity. And the Trinity is a mystery to us, something that we can't know. So the actual act of the crucifixion or of the atonement is something that we just can't know. So what's the time? Um, there isn't much time left. Um, okay, so what, I, what, I, what I'm interested in is how these ideas relate to sort of everyday life. Um, so for one thing, I think they can inform our understanding of the parts of our personhood. And they can inform um, the way we maybe, or what Julian thinks we do, um, the way we often like separate the parts of ourselves and sort of create a dualism. So Julian really addresses the issue of body-soul dualism um, as Christians see it. So the idea that our bodies and souls are separate things and sin comes through the body. We sin through our body. And so our body is something that we would, and we also suffer through our bodies. So we receive evils through our bodies. Um, and it is something that maybe we ought to dispense with or something that we ought not to love. Um, so Julian sees this dualism that we construct as something that's constructed by the narrative that sin tells about itself. So sin tells this narrative that um, about itself as something that's constructing order in the universe. And something it says is that there are two parts to our selfhood, our substance and our sensuality. However, for Julian, she doesn't think that there, we sin because there are these two parts to our selfhood. Rather, because of our separation from God, our two parts, our substance and our sensuality, which are loosely identified with the body or with the soul, substance and soul, and sensuality, our body and sensuality. Um, for Julian, because of our separation from God, our substance and sensuality have unnaturally separated, and because they have become two separate parts, they can be at war with one another. So Julian wants to see a person's selfhood as a very unified thing. We can identify substance, we can identify sensuality, we can identify bodies and souls, however, in an ideal world, they're supposed to be united together. And that is what divine love is seeking after. It doesn't want this warring between the self. This comes because we have fallen away from God. So to, under, to think of ourselves as dualistic creatures is a return to the narrative that sin tells about itself. Sin doesn't know itself. Sin misperceives that it is sin. And so it sees this dualism when in fact, this dualism is itself caused by the presence of sin. So um, Julian has this very interesting interplay between these various ways of looking at sin. And honestly, I find it very complicated and in many places confusing because she really focuses in on paradoxes and paradoxes 
are paradoxical. So, <laughs> I don't know. So, <laughs> um, but I am, I am really interested in the way that her like views on the atonement and love and sin can possibly influence the way we, looks, we look at our bodies. And I'm interested in that, in the connection of hers and Incris, because as an Incris, Julian is living in her tomb. She is um, living, a, like she's in the place of a living death. It's a very strange sort of position. And also her three prayers at the beginning are very strange because she's asking for suffering. She's asking for an experience of the passion. So in a certain way, her body, she doesn't treat her body very well and with like a lot of self-care, like we often speak of treating our bodies, but yet it seems like her theology points her towards a full acceptance and love for the fact that we're embodied creatures. Um, so I would really like to hear what people think about all this. And if there are any questions, it's sort of a big topic and it's hard to like bring together all of the parts of her thought, but I don't know, I think it's really beautiful. Oh yeah, <laughs> beholdly is a term that Julian used to talk about sin, and it's a sort of like modal category. So she wants to talk about sin as fitting, rather than as necessary or as contingent upon some sort of action. So Julian speaks of sin as being like fitting, as the way things can be or should be according to God's plan. So yeah. Oh. No, go ahead, John. Um, so on this question of, of Julian's attitude towards bodily suffering, yeah. a couple of things that jumped out to me were, first, the, the quote about wishing for sickness, and then the, the whole conversation about being pancreas in general. Yeah. And that like, raises questions for me about um, what, the, like, what a, a Christ-like and healthy Christian attitude towards suffering would be. Yeah. Um, and then, frankly, I was a little, the, the quote, if he could suffer more, he would. That seems to me to contradict the image of Christ um, sweating blood in the garden and asking not to be crucified. Yeah. Do you think that, do you think that Julian's um, attitude towards suffering is in line with Christ's attitude towards suffering? Mm, that's a good question. I mean, I think she would say it is because she sees her revelations as sort of like amplifying special revelation. Um, I mean, Christ, the way Christ is depicted in her early revelations is as suffering immensely. So um, I, don't, I don't think she would say that he didn't suffer. I don't think it's an atonement if he didn't undergo the most grievous pains, as she would say. And it appears in her descriptions that he does. Um, I'm not sure how to answer that question, though, other than that. I think for her it's a mystery. Like, I don't know. Yeah. I'm comfortable with the idea of mystery. I'm struggling with this. But I wonder two concepts that we need to work with. Um, oftentimes when I'm speaking to non-Christians, I'm talking about free will as a gift that God gives us. as an explanation also for sin. In terms that in love, he's allowed us to choose because love requires choice. How does that tie in with what she is saying? Um, I think she addresses that very um, directly. Um, and it's in her concept. She addresses it through the concept of sin as a I should hear it. I'm sorry. She addresses it through the remaining sin as something that's important. So she's trying to she, It seems like her doctrine or her way of thinking about the like, free will and sin is as like fitting in between the sort of categories that we normally talk about. 
as like God needing to allow us the ability to sin, so like, or you know, like God controlling all of our actions. So honestly, it's I'm pretty confused by a lot of the things she says. They're they're very interesting because they're very beautiful phrase. So when you first read them, you're like, oh wow, this is like so beautiful and you know easy accessible. But she's engaging pretty strongly, I think, with a lot of her contemporaries, like well, like Augustine. Um, but I think she does have an answer to that. I just think they don't understand the whole thing. That's nonetheless, but yeah. I really get concerned when Paul tells us yeah. if this resurrection is not true, yes. then we're the greatest of all fools. And I hear her say, ah, resurrection isn't necessary, it's the cross. Yes. And so I, I really struggle with her when I hear those words. Yes, it's very, yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I feel like she's treading a very fine, that thin line between that. I mean, like, she, I feel like she, she thinks the resurrection is real, and it necessarily follows from the crucifixion, but it's not like, it can't, you can't see it as a sort of, like, man-made, like, how, you know, like, the resurrection is, like, power, it's like a, like a, an image of power, like, coming back to destroying sin, it just, like, follows from the fact that sin, like, defeats love. Like attitude towards suffering is only being willing to suffer. Yeah. Because when I'm willing to suffer, I don't actually have to suffer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and Julian yeah. might say that Christ did suffer. Like he he did it. Yeah. So do we really have to fear it? That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess. Like, just going off of some of the things that you said, I just wonder if maybe this concept of to love is to be vulnerable, and sin is, in a sense, like it's violence. Yeah. That in that scheme, it almost seems as though to love with sin, like where there is sin, is to suffer. I mean, because it is to allow yourself to be vulnerable, which opens you up to the violence yeah. of sin. And so, yeah. I just wonder if for her, from what you've said, they're not that to love and to suffer, or rather that to love in a world that has sin is to suffer. Yes, I think that's very true. I think that's the way she looks at it. And I think that's what's important about the fact that she forgets her first prayer. She prays for these things, for sickness and for experience of the passion, if it's God's will. And then she forgets them entirely, and it just comes to her, these things. So I think that kind of represents, like, her asking for it does, in a sense, a, like, give her this gift. But it's God's will that it comes to her unexpectedly. Okay, sorry. <laughs>